When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ben Bain. Joined by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Coming up on the show today, we're going to talk about the global pandemic and the politics around the U.S. push to vaccinate more Americans and reopen businesses from Wall Street to Main Street. We're going to get the latest on the White House's big infrastructure plan. We're also going to talk about some drama in the House Republican caucus over Liz Cheney and her ongoing clash with former President Donald Trump. And later in the show, we're going to have Allison Heron Lee, a Democratic commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission. I'm Ben Bain, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. And we're joined on the line by Congressman Blaine Luckmeyer. Uh, Thanks so much for being here, Congressman. really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Ben. Good to be with you this afternoon. And Rick. So so thanks. And you're you're joining us from Missouri, I understand, where you represent the 3rd District. That's correct. So, uh, you know, I'm really interested to hear what are you hearing from your constituents right now? Uh, Got a little recess here. You're you're back home and and you're talking to people. What's top of mind right now? Well, the, the two things that I get asked about consistently uh, over the last uh, week that we've been home were, number one, what are we going to do about this $300 check that allows people to stay home and not come to work? Uh, as a result, the small businesses really are struggling to try and find enough people to be able to work their businesses, whether it's a restaurant or a manufacturing plant or the, or the hardware store on the corner, uh, without people willing to come to work. Uh, you know, they're able to stay home and get, you know, $300 just to stay home, uh, those businesses are struggling. And I think that's going to not bode well for economic recovery here. I think we're going to be fine, but it's going to, I think, stretch out the recovery. The second thing we hear about is this uh, stepped-up basis in, uh, in, in inheriting property that the Biden administration is talking about eliminating. This is really created a firestorm among my small business people and farmers. I live in the central part of the state in the rural part of my district, and I got a farmer that came up to me the other night, and he said, Blaine, I want to tell you, look, this is concerning to me. He said, I've I've got, uh, I bought a farm, you know, my farm 40 years ago for $200 an acre, and it's worth $6,000 an acre now. There's no way if something happens to me and this thing is eliminated that my family can 
can pay the inheritance tax on this and be able to retain the farm. So, so this is a real concern, and these these are the two things I hear about most uh, about the, the latest programs from uh, from the president. So, so you talk about the latest programs from the president. You're talking about small businesses. I mean, there are there are a number of things in these infrastructure plans that, in theory, would benefit a lot of those small businesses in your district. And and you kind of have a have a slice of Americana, right? You're talking from the suburbs of St. Louis all the way through the capital into some more rural areas. So, so you see, a, you know, a, a lot of your state. Are there things in there that maybe you can work with the White House on? Maybe there's certain points in this these infrastructure plans that you could support? Well, I think the infrastructure part of the bill, which is only 9% of this bill, or excuse me, 6%, less than 6% of the bill, um, which are roads and bridges and highways and ports and airports, things like that. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously we're willing to sit down and talk with the folks on that. And my guys uh, in my district are certainly interested in talking about that. But the other you know, 94% uh, and how you pay for it uh, is, is not acceptable. Uh, they are they are pulling their hair out and, and, and tremendously uh, nervous about the direction of this thing because uh, as small businesses, uh, you know, they, they understand the need for infrastructure and they're supportive of that. They're willing to do what it takes to get that done. But whenever you're, you're continuing to allow um, people to stay home, and not uh, come to work uh, so they can actually earn a living so they can actually get their business up and running, it makes it pretty tough. It's a tough sell. And then whenever you look at the tax structure, you know, um, Ben, there's uh, I'm a ranking member on small business, and there's uh, even though the, the you know the 95% of all the small businesses are S-Corps, there's still 1 million C-Corps out there that are small businesses. So when you raise the corporate rate, uh, by a third, which is what is being proposed, that's a hammer on the on the small businesses. When you raise the the individual rate and you double cap gains or run cap gains through their through their regular um, pay, uh, rate now, that is a, that is another dagger in the heart. And so then you add on top of it this estate tax, um, you know, reconfiguration of the tax itself plus elimination of the stepped up basis. There's, there's a war on small business going on, and they're very, very concerned about this. And, yeah, while they're supportive of, of, of uh, infrastructure, uh, true infrastructure, the other 94 percent of this bill is not something they support. Congressman, uh, you know, talking a little bit more about these small businesses, because I think this is the one thing that I keep hearing over and over on Capitol Hill from members I know is that um, uh, these increases in, in corporate rates it, are going to affect consumers and small business people. And, and are you seeing any backlash even within the Democratic Party on some of these? I mean, obviously, the, the impact on family farms with this uh, elimination of the stepped-up basis. I mean, these are all things that have real practical uh, and immediate applications that would be very difficult for people who, by President Biden's admission, are the folks he's actually trying to help. And, and so do you see a reconciliation happening in the House on some of this? I mean, what will actually wind up making it through, like, your committee? I don't know. I, I, that's a great question, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not sure how far they're willing to go. I think uh, I could find a half a dozen Democrats that would be willing to look at just infrastructure and, 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 and some of this other tax stuff, you know, let it go away. But unfortunately, uh, AOC and company seem to be running the – the, the the party over there and you know to the extent that if you don't go along with them they go find a primary candidate to try and take you out um you know for instance i think 
something like this estate tax, the stepped-up basis on the estate tax, uh, I think that's something we could probably get rid of. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Family Business Estate Tax Coalition estimated that 800,000 jobs would be lost over 10 years and 100,000 a year after that. It costs, 30, costs workers $32 for every $100 of revenue raised. It's going to cost about $10 billion in GDP. This is a non-starter, and I think uh, many, many uh, Democrats would be willing to look at that and say, no, 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 this, this can't happen, because many of them are small business owners, too. They, they've got family members who are small business owners, and the inability to pass on a small business to, to your loved ones um, is going to crush the small businesses of this country, and guess who's the beneficiary of all that? It's the big businesses. Big so businesses, this right. Is, this, is, this, is, this is a big business bill through and through. They don't care about the raising the corporate tax on themselves because they pass those taxes along. Small businesses aren't able to do that. Small businesses have to – and this, this is why the, the three years prior to the pandemic, whenever we cut taxes and cut regulation, were so impactful because they gave us a template on how to generate uh, economic, economic activity. If you turn that around now and you take money away from the small businesses that they were investing in new, in new equipment and new plant exp, uh, uh, expansion and new employees, if you stop that, you're going to stop that hiring of new employees. You're going to stop that expansion of the business. Stop that, you know, adding of new equipment in your business. And so this is really, really harmful. Um, and if you increase regulation, it takes money to comply with regulations. And so, again, that's another hit. And small businesses have very little room to, to, to work as, uh, compared to what the big corporations Congressman, so, part of the – sorry to cut you off, but I mean, part, of the, part of the – what the White House is, is, is saying here, though, is that these, fo- these, these programs are focused on creating jobs for smaller businesses. It sounds like you're saying essentially that the tax element – completely outweighs any of these new infrastructure programs that are going to be developed. The, the administration and some of your Democratic colleagues are are seeing this quite differently. I mean, they're, they're, as you know, saying that ultimately the programs and the money that's going to go towards building new infrastructure, be it the traditional um, roads and bridges or other types of um, programs, are going to create a number of new industries, let alone new jobs. So it sounds like you're saying that the tax repercussions outweigh those new jobs from what you're hearing from your constituents? Yeah, so very significantly. I mean, I, I still have yet to see an estimate of the new jobs uh, on their infrastructure bill. Uh, there isn't one out there. They, they talk about they're going to create jobs, but they can't put a number on it. So it, does it really create jobs? I can tell you the tax part of this bill is going to, is going to cost jobs. There is no doubt about it. Whenever we, after the last three, three years prior to the pandemic, at the end of that time, we had 1.2 million more jobs than we have people to fill them. Where are we now? We're now we've got we're paying people to stay home when we actually could use them in the workforce, and we're going to get ready to tax the small businesses who are unable to make a living because people are not 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 working their factories or their restaurants, and now you're going to slap a tax on them. This is this is going to be the death knell for a lot of a lot of small businesses. They just can't survive when you're getting hit from both sides like this. Yeah, Congressman, I think the point you're making has uh, been made actually even in the previous administration. I remember uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, my good friend, uh, argued with the Trump administration about the $900 to stay home and not work. And, and, and now we've whittled the number down a bit. Uh, and, and, and it is this management of the family and their needs versus uh, what, um, what we want to do to spur employment. And we do see 
uh, new employment numbers, uh, exactly what you just described, saying that we actually need people to go back to work, that jobs in manufacturing and the service industries are going unfilled. And so maybe the administration ought to be looking for ways to uh, try and uh, employ people uh, without, without having them stay at home on the government dole. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, Congressman Blaine Lutmeyer. We appreciate you being here with us. I'm Ben Bain. Coming up, we are going to talk a bit more about the White House's plans and also talk a little bit about today. You heard that we heard the president speaking about the coronavirus pandemic, and we are going to get into some other issues as well that are catching everyone's attention here in Washington. I'm Ben Bain. This is Bloomberg. And I'm Ben Bain, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. And we're joined by Laura Fink, Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Rebel Communications. As we uh, were talking about earlier, we're going to be delving a bit into what the White House is planning to do and really grapple with into the next phase of its plan to deal with the COVID pandemic. Uh, President Biden today uh, speaking at the White House, basically announcing a new three-pronged approach, he says, that's going to help America move into the next phase here. He laid out a plan to consider ways to potentially vaccinate children once the FDA approves that, uh, make it more convenient for people to get vaccinated, including by introducing a new website. And finally, and probably most importantly, and we're going to get into this with our panelists here, convincing Americans who are still hesitant to get vaccinated to want to go ahead and take the jab. Here's sound on that. As we anticipated, the pace of the vaccination is slowing. Now the majority of American adults have already gotten their first shot. But we're still vaccinating millions of Americans every day. So, Rick, Laura, we heard from President Biden today. And, you know, I have to say, I mean, the United States, you look at the rest of the world, in, in many ways, we're, we're way ahead of where really every other country in the world is right now. There's discussions about how to get some of these vaccines to the rest of the world. But are we hitting an inflection point here? You heard it a little bit from the president today where there's concern that at a certain point, everyone who has gotten a shot or the people who want shots, and now it really comes to convincing them. Rick, can you can you talk about that a little bit? What do you think? Sure. Uh, look, I mean, obviously, they are addressing the issue that remains, which is trying to get the harder half of the population uh, with a vaccine rather than the easy half, which was people willing to go and stand in line at a, a mass vaccination site. Uh, as those close down, and a lot of them are this month even, uh, and they're closing down not because uh, they're running out of vaccine or anything like that. It's just running out of people who will show up at those locations. So I think it's actually smart policy to start making more of a public campaign around the need to get vaccinated, to you know, get your vaccinations because it's good for your neighbors, get your vaccinations because it's good for your employer. You know, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to, to sell it, but it's important that uh, they make these things as readily available. And I think having these pharmacies where you know, you're walking into a pharmacy or a grocery store and you can get vaccinated right then and there, uh, is really going to help uh, keep the momentum up. Uh, it, it's starting to tail off a little bit now, although daily averages of about two and a, two and a half, two point two million are still happening. Sure, the expectation is it'll decline. And 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 Laura, I, I mean, one of the the highest marks that President Biden gets so far is for his handling of the this pandemic. Uh, there were a couple polls out recently which showed him well over sixty percent of Americans approving of how he handled this. Do, do you think that there's a, a political risk here for the White House that as 
we start to get into the people who are reluctant, uh, you know, maybe uh, there's there's a need to to also kind of think about the the politics here because he has been so popular. This administration has drawn a lot of its popularity from its handling of the coronavirus so far. Well, I, I don't know that anyone that's vaccine hesitant uh, is is necessarily necessarily going to punish Joe Biden for advertising the vaccine, and and I agree with Rick that we need to a centralized effort to advertise and to talk about the benefits and to sort of reach those populations that maybe just need more information. I think you also have to go in with trusted sources. So, you know, people's employers, people, people, uh, we got to do some Hollywood stuff. We've got to do, you know, people's labor union, people's church. All of these could be trusted uh, sponsors of the vaccine or for information and encouragers. And, you know, but to your point about partisanship, one yeah. of the most vaccine hesitant groups is, as we know, in the Republican circles, particularly people that support Donald Trump. Sure. Um, and, and within those groups, particularly men, and within that group, particularly men that identify as masculine, as see themselves as particularly masculine. So you've got to look at that data. And you've got to say, okay, how do we go ahead and make sure that we persuade these people? So we've got to get some some trusted people uh, that those individuals and groups may be persuaded by. And I don't think we've seen a lot of that. So um, do you, do, is, is that the next phase here? Do you think? What's that? That's the next phase here. You think the you think the White House? I think will... that's the next phase. I would you know I heard Frank Luntz talk about it. You know, uh, same Republican pollster saying we've got to find a way to penetrate um, this 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 problem because we know that herd immunity is up there at 80 percent we're nowhere near that we don't know if we'll get there but the closer we get the better off we are and and the easier it will be to handle smaller outbreaks of this virus as it continues to morph and and to become more spreadable and uh and and in terms of thinking about what the next phase might be is, is this something that comes from the white house or is this something that that actually is going to need to come from you mentioned Hollywood before. Is, is, this a, is this a civic society kind of effort? What do you think, Rick? Yeah, I think this should be, I think, you know, the Biden administration should use their power, you know, to pull together people from every walk of life to be able to push out this message of go get a shot. Well, thanks a lot. We're, uh, we're, we'll be back in just a few moments. We're going to switch gears a little bit and continue our conversation with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Laura Fink and talk about some drama simmering in the Republican House caucus. This is Bloomberg. Rick Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Laura, I know you all been waiting to delve into this one. Uh, there's some signs today that Liz Cheney's time as the GOP conference chair may be numbered. Just to catch everyone up here who maybe hasn't been following this uh, bit by bit. So Cheney was one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump following the January 6th riot at the Capitol by the president's by the former president's supporters. She fended off attempts to oust her in February, but she's become increasingly isolated in her own party after she repeatedly has criticized Trump as he's continued to falsely claim that the election was rigged. 
So here we are. It's uh, it's Tuesday, May 4th, and today we have Kevin McCarthy, the highest-ranking Republican in the House, saying, and I quote, I've heard from members concerned about her ability to carry out the job as conference chair to carry out the message. So, Rick, I want to start with you here. Um, you're a Republican veteran. You've, you've, you've been in these campaigns. Is this just kind of more noise, or is this kind of the real time when the rubber hits the road in terms of figuring out whether the Republican Party is still the party of Trump or something else? Well, Ben, I must say congratulations because you did make a complete insider baseball issue sound actually mainstream <laughs> as you introduced this topic. So <laughs> well done on that. Uh, look, I mean, this is stuff of junkies. Um, uh, McCarthy goes on, he's got a hot mic, says he's had it with her on the same Fox interview. That makes its rounds. Um, uh, and, 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 and I love the, the message he gave, that she can't carry the message. Is the message that she's not carrying that they want to agree to the, lo- the big lie about the election? Or uh, is it something to do with taxes and spending of the Biden administration? Because I don't think she has any problem with that one. Uh, I would say she was given a little bit of a lifeline by Senator Mitt Romney today, who weighed in on her uh, behalf and said that, you know, he supports her for refusing to perpetuate this Trump myth on uh, voters. And so, also, and, and also, we also heard from um, the White House press secretary Jen Psaki uh, weighing hmm. in as well. Uh, we have sound on that. The Republican Party seems to be spending a lot of blood, sweat, and tears trying to figure out where they stand and what they stand for, and that's their prerogative. So, Laura, I want to bring you in here. Politically for the Democrats, you know, is this just uh, kind of inside GOP beltway baseball or, or, or is this kind of what some Democrats have been hoping for for a long time, that moment when Republicans have to decide, are, are you still the party of Trump or, or has the party moved on? You know, I, I think it's that. I, I think it's also it's less of a litmus test about Trump, which is who, who is inarguably the the head of the of the Republican Party. Um, I do think it's a little bit more about how the GOP will tolerate differences of opinion, especially about something uh, like whether or not someone won an election. Like how central is what Trump says um, and his pet issues the cornerstone of the party? And I think we got our answer when you take the highest ranking GOP woman, and you have Kevin McCarthy, who I think his knees are knocking. I think he took a call from Mar-a-Lago and got a little scared because as soon as she speaks out, it was no coincidence that, that, that Donald Trump had brought up the big lie once again in, in a public way the day before. So she's maintained a consistent position. But I would say there are three things here that we can take away. One, uh, we see a retaliation against women like uh, Liz Cheney and not against folks like um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. The second thing I would say is, is what we were talking about before. What is the Republican mes- message? If Kevin McCarthy says that she's off message, is that the central message that we're going to see running into the midterms? I think maybe it is. I think it also highlights the Republicans have struggled to find a cohesive message uh, in terms of what they would do for Americans. They do have a, a solid grip on the whatever Biden is doing. It's a no. But I think that's something to look for. Kevin McCarthy wants a message enforced but it's not clear exactly what it is. And then the third thing, fealty to Trump remains the primary measure of the support you will get from GOP leadership. And we will see that uh, as the midterms continue and Republican primaries take place. 
And Rick, do you think that's going to continue into as we kind of look towards 2022? I mean, one thing, uh, you know, with, with Kevin McCarthy, uh, one of our, our colleagues here at Bloomberg noted that that he's you know been mentioning Trump in a recent uh, visit to Mar-a-Lago in, in fundraising uh, notes as well. So so is is how much of what we're seeing here is about fundraising and how much of this do you think is just a preview to what we're going to see over the next year in terms of the campaign? You know, I think it's a mixed bag, Ben. I think you're going to have Donald Trump uh, continue to hold uh, some control over the party apparatus, uh, especially around money. Uh, and, and by the way, he's the one raising the money in his account, not into the RNC account. So uh, the party won't have access to it. He will. And and so, yes, there'll be people who want to make their way to Mar-a-Lago for cash. Uh, in addition to that, he's going to use that cash to run against, you know, sitting U.S. senators and congressmen who have not uh, carried his message, uh, whatever that happens to be. And, and, and so I think there's going to be that kind of pushback, but there are leaders in the Republican party like Mitch McConnell who said, okay, stop it. I'll give, I'll give cover to Republican senators who want to speak out on this. Uh, you're never going to hear him admonish Mitt Romney for weighing in on something like this. So the party is split, uh, how far it's split is yet to be determined. And all of this is actually bad for their prospects for winning seats in 2022. So, Rick, real quick, and then Laura, I want to ask you too. Do you think this? Do you think we're going to see uh, Liz Cheney ousted here from her leadership role? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, I Rick? think if uh, McCarthy pulls his support from her, she'll probably go. How about you, Laura? Seventy percent support when she was called upon when her vote was called in February. I think I think she's got a chance of surviving it since it's a secret ballot, but it'll be close. Interesting. Well, uh, we'll we'll certainly uh, be watching uh, be watching closely. When we come back, uh, I'm going to be speaking with Democratic Commissioner Allison Heron Lee on the Securities and Exchange Commission. We're going to talk about a number of topics: uh, market volatility. We're going to talk about cryptocurrencies. We're also going to talk about uh, climate and the role that the SEC uh, can play there. Uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation. We will be back. I'm Ben Bain. This is Bloomberg. I'm Ben Bain. I'm joined by Allison Heron Lee, a Democratic member of the Securities and Exchange Commission, who until last month was serving as the acting chair of the SEC Wall Street's main regulator. Commissioner Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's been a busy year, and uh, you were at the helm of, uh, of the SEC for much of it. Um, and it seems like it's it's pretty unlikely to to slow down anytime soon. Uh, I'm just looking at uh, kind of stock stock moves of the day and market seems to hit record after record. Cryptocurrencies are surging. Some have been calling this an everything rally. I'm curious, Commissioner Lee, from from your position, what worries you about this situation that we find ourselves in right now, where where everything seems to be going up? Um, it, it, are there areas that you think maybe um, the SEC needs to be paying particular attention to? Sure. You know, what I would say is uh, it's our job at the SEC to, to worry and, and to, you know, focus on and consider what's going on in the markets. Um, it's not our job to, uh, you know, police whether they go up or down, but rather to make sure that they're running smoothly. And I think, you know, that's something that we've been able to do in the face of a lot of volume, a lot of demand, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of ups and downs. So I'm, sure. I'm comfortable with the infrastructure and um, in terms of, of the economy and, and the stock market itself. Those are issues that, you know, as, as I said, it, that's our job to, to sort of be focused on and worried about. And, and, and you know, as, as you were acting chair um, of the agency for 
really up until a few weeks ago, uh, you know, there was tremendous market volatility. And, and I, I was wondering if, if, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear your views, particularly just a few weeks in when we had this uh, th- this really extraordinary moment with GameStop and some of these other so-called meme stocks. Um, it was became a national story, essentially, which usually a business story became this Wall Street versus Main Street uh, phenomenon. And now that we've kind of moved a few months past that, um, I'm curious to kind of hear from you about what the takeaways were. Where do you think the gaps were uh, in terms of regulation or visibility um, that that we saw, you know, through all this? And and do you think they've been they've been plugged at this point, or there's more left to do? So you're you're absolutely right. That was a pretty galvanizing moment, um, and it occurred actually one one week into my tenure. Um, you know, I think it's premature at this point to draw any firm definite conclusions. And, and as you probably know, our staff is working on a report right now to kind of lay out all the facts. I think it's very important that we get the facts right so that we get the policy right. But certainly um, it brought to the forefront some pretty important issues. First and foremost, I think payment for order flow, which I know you know is just through the, the practice of, of um, broker-dealers routing customer orders based on venues paying them for routing those orders. I think we need to make sure that there's sufficient transparency and visibility on how that's operating and whether that's operating in investors, retail investors' best interest. It also, I think, brought to the forefront this idea of so-called gamification of the stock markets. Um, Clearly, you know, tools and apps are very useful in increasing investors' access to the markets, but we really need to pay close attention to whether they are promoting investor behavior that's really in the investor's interest rather than that of the brokers themselves and whether they distort perceptions about the real-life consequences of the risks of their trading. So those are a couple of, uh, you know, I think policy issues that we're going to need to look at going forward to make sure we understand whether there are steps we need to take. As, as you know, uh, the, the the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, is going to be uh, testifying in a hearing on uh, just two days uh, on Thursday uh, before the House Financial Services Committee uh, talking about GameStop and some of these these very issues. Is there a need for Congress to step in here? Um, the House Financial Services Committee has put out a couple of draft uh, proposed bills. Some of them are only two pages long, but they seem to suggest that there's some desire uh, to actually write law that would deal with some of these issues. Or is this something that, as you see it, the SEC has the power to do itself um, through rulemaking or other types of measures? Well, it depends on the specific policy that we're looking at and the specific issue. Uh, Obviously, Congress will make its own decisions about when and if it wants to to draft legislation. We certainly have the the requisite authority to look at things like I mentioned, like payment for order flow, like like gamification. We've also got, you know, there are some other issues that, that this these events raise, like like the settlement cycle and the length sure. of the settlement cycle. Um, we have certainly, you know, we've got plenty of authority to look at and consider that. As you know, we recently, we shortened the settlement cycle three years ago. Now we're kind of looking at whether we need to do that again. So I think we have plenty of authority to deal with many of the issues and policies that are implicated by these events. But that doesn't mean that Congress may not decide to you know, to, to draft some legislation that's completely within their um, that's within their realm to do so should they choose. 
and, and, and GameStop issues were kind of right at the beginning of your tenure. And then right at the end, there was another uh, event that really captured Wall Street and, and you know, not just financial headlines, but, but more broadly as well. And, and that was, um, you know, the, the liquidation of Archegos Capital Management. And in some of the issues raised there, um, essentially of how family offices um, are regulated and also how derivatives are used uh, on Wall Street. Uh, people have been raising issues in terms of whether there needs to be increased regulation, both in terms of the use of derivatives potentially by family offices and hedge funds, and additionally whether there's perhaps disclosure or additional disclosure needed. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you think the SEC needs to go here. Um, this issue certainly has uh, captured a lot of interest, particularly uh, as banks have collectively reported billions of dollars in losses. Yeah, no, no question. I mean, as you point out, this, this, this particular fund, Archegos, was a, it's what's called a family office, which for the most part means they're excluded from uh, a lot of our, our regulatory regime at the SEC. And so, you know, is there a transparency gap there? Perhaps, perhaps there is. Um, they're not completely... There certainly are rules, like, as you know, about reporting thresholds for investors under 13D. If they hit 5%, they have to report, um, but not when it's a derivative. So I do think we need, we need to look at and consider whether when we have these kinds of products that are not directly equities, but rather these total return swaps, which are, which are derivative forms of that, should we have a better reporting regime? Should they have to report? Um, you know, on 13D, should they have to report their holdings under under 13F, those kind of quarterly holdings that institutional investment advisors would would normally report? I think we need to look at all of that. Um, and I think finally, one really important piece that we need to consider here is whether we understand as well as we need to the risk management practices at some of these counterparties, these prime uh, dealers that were counterparties to Archegos that seem to be unaware of how, Archegos's combined exposures. How big of a blind spot, uh, you know, w w was this? I mean, do, do, do you think that, you know, this was something, this is a bit of a wake-up call, or this was this was a one-off when you think about it in kind of the, the overall system here of, of entities like this and, and the regulation uh, coming from Washington? Well, it's hard to know when you say how big of a blind spot are if you're referring to how big of a blind spot was it at the with the counterparties, um, that's a question, of course, I can't answer directly. Um, but I will say that I, you know, it, it strikes me as being similar to a bank giving out a loan without visibility uh, on the other depths of the loan recipient. So I, you know, I worry about that a little bit. In terms of regulatory blind spots, as I said, I think there are some places we need to consider whether the definition of family office is it the way, you know, do, do we have the carve-out right there? I think looking at um, potential reporting on 13D and 13F, sort of the holdings and, and you know, sure. of, of these types of derivatives is something we need to look at. So, yeah, it, it does implicate some, some policies that I think it makes good sense for us to consider. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you, during, during your time as, as acting chair, you were very focused on the role that the SEC could play in terms of uh, ESG and, and, and climate. Um, talk with us a little bit about how you see the financial regulator and the financial um, regulatory structure um, 
dealing with climate. You know, there's there's some in the business community and also Republicans who who kind of push back against the idea that the SEC is squarely in the middle of this. Um, you know, you've made it um, pretty much a focus um, at the regulator. So, you know, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about how you how you see the SEC as playing an important role here. Sure. I mean, it starts with the investor demand. There's enormous investor demand for climate and particularly climate related, but also other ESG related disclosures. And that's our job at the SEC is to protect investors. It's a central part of what we do. So ensuring that investors have consistent, comparable and reliable information so they can price risk and allocate capital. Um, that's our role. And here, I think we've got investors representing tens of trillions of dollars in investments, the largest asset managers in the world. They're out there um, telling us they need more information in order to do this. So I think we need to take a look at that, team up with market participants and investors um, and issuers. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, That was Democratic Commissioner Allison Heron-Lee on the Securities and Exchange Commission. I'm Ben Bain. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.